We, we have been in a series that we're calling Sound of Silence, and we've been talking about hopelessness and despair and depression. And um, my, my goal in this whole series, hopefully, is that you can come to a place, if this is something that you are struggling with, that this is something that you're wrestling with, that you can come to a place where God truly does um, restore your joy. That is my prayer. That is my hope. And I know so many of us are wrestling with this very topic, with that hopelessness, with that depression, with that despair. You feel like it's the end of the line. You feel like you've done everything that you know how to do. And so maybe you find yourself here today. You're here going, God, answer me. I need some answers this morning. So my prayer is that God would speak to you. But to dive wide in, I thought I'd open up a little bit differently. How many of you guys have ever experienced the phenomenon known as a show hole? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody, if you've ever seen the commercial, it's probably the greatest commercial on the face of the earth. But it's this. How many of you have ever been sitting down, Netflix, Hulu, you have your favorite show, and all of a sudden after six seasons, it ends, and you're like, oh my God, what do I do in my life now? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like your show ends, the series is over, and you're like, what do I watch now? And so out of desperation, what do you do? You jump to Facebook and you're like, please, anybody have any good recommendations on seasons? Like, I don't have a life. I just sit down and watch Netflix all day. Please, someone give me a show. And so maybe somebody recommends a show, and you're like, okay, great. Maybe this will, you know, scratch my itch. I'm going to watch this show. And two or three episodes in, you're like, man, my friend has horrible taste. This, this is the worst show I've ever seen. But there's also something inside of you that's like, no, I'm going I'm to continue pushing through. Maybe the plot will get better. Maybe somewhere four or five episodes in, you know, it'll start resolving. It'll get exciting. It'll get interesting. And I'll be interested in this show. And you only begin to realize that the show just gets worse and worse and worse. How many guys ever remember the show Lost? Show of hands. I gave six years of my life to that show. <laughs> Six years of my life to that show. And when that show ended, I was like, are they dead? Are they on an island? I have no idea what's going on. I was still lost. I'm still bitter about watching that show. No joke. When that show came out, I was still in Bible college at the time. I remember not studying for tests because I was watching Lost. But when it finally ended, it, it did not resolve. There was no resolution whatsoever. They, they promised, the directors, the producers promised that there would be answers. And you find yourself not getting any answers. You don't know what the heck they're doing on the island. You don't know what the island was all about. Who was Jake? I don't know. Nobody knew any of these things. And the truth is, the reason I share that this morning is because some of you find yourself kind of in that TV show right now. You find yourself in these episodes of life where you're like, surely the plot is going to get better. Surely, like, this next season of my life is going to get better. Surely, like, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and it's just going to get a little bit better. And maybe a week passes by and you're like, it's still the same thing. You still feel like you're stuck in this episode and the plot line never increases. It never gets any better. You never find any hope. There's never, ever any resolve. And you're asking the question that I want to answer this morning. Will my life always suck? (laughs) Because the truth is, when you are battling with hopelessness and depression, that is the question that is constantly begging to be answered. Will it ever get any better? 
Will it ever get any better? It's just like watching that TV show. Surely this has to get better. The acting has to get better. The plot has to get better. But within depression, you find yourself kind of getting sucked into this tunnel of going, man, it's just never going to get better. There's no happy ending. There's no joyful conclusion. And the psalmist, or the psalm that we're about to read, Psalms 88 you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. If you're following on the Version app, it's there for you as well. Um, but the psalm that we're about to read is a lot like that TV show Lost that I just described. Um, you, you, you're, we're going to read tons of emotions. We're going to read tons of feelings. We're going to read tons of laments and agony and crying out and desperation to God, but there is never any resolve. And oftentimes that's what depression feels like. Psalms 88 is like a lone ranger in the middle of the psalms. There's none like it. There's not a single psalm like it. It is the only psalm um, like it. It is the only psalm within the Bible that does not have a resolution. There is not a verse at the end that says, but praise be to God, you got me out of this, you know, pit of despair. It doesn't end like that. So let's read it. We're going to read the whole thing, and then I'm going to do exactly what I did last week. We're going to pick it apart verse by verse, okay? Psalms 88, and we're going to read verses 1 through 18, which is actually the entire psalm. It says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. Now let me just preface, that is the most hopeful part about this psalm, okay? (laughs) It says, uh, verse 2, may my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. He says, I am overwhelmed with troubles as my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who goes down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. Put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and you have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord. Every day I spread out my hands to you. Verse 10. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Now he's being sarcastic. He says, do their spirits raise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Face of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion. But I cry to you, Lord, help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? He says, from my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have been born to terrors and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. In the last verse, verse 18, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. The end. (laughs) Um, And all God's people said, what the heck was that? (laughs) Right? That's not a psalm that you read and you're like, amen. I love that one. That, that is the end. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, Pastor, didn't we leave out a verse? Are you sure there's not like verse 19? There's not a second part to this? Because oftentimes we're in church. We love to hear like, you know, we, 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 we hate movies with sad endings, right? We don't like watching the movie and the main character dies. You're like, man, that was a terrible movie. We love to have happy endings, and oftentimes in church, that's what we have. Hey, you have this depression, but we can go through this moment, and this is what you're going to feel if you do this, 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 and this. But the psalm just ends in this oblique way by saying, darkness is now my closest friend. Where's the part that says, if you're happy and you know it, just clap your hands, because we're all in church, right? That part is absent. It is completely missing. Now, what is this depressing psalm doing in God's hope-filled book? 
There's, there's not another piece of literature like this in the Bible. I mean, we see moments of desperation in the Bible. We see tons of psalms in the Bible that are, are, are crying out to God, that are lamenting, that are, but they always resolve. There's always some kind of twinge of hope. And, and for some, it's not much, but there, it's always there except for this one. What is Psalms 88 doing in the Scriptures? I believe it's in the Scriptures because sometimes life just feels like that doesn't. Sometimes life just feels like Psalms 88. Sometimes the very season, the chapter of your life that you find yourself in right now, it doesn't feel like it's going to resolve. It feels like Psalms 88. You, you, the reason that we relate to this psalm is because it's so raw, it's so honest, and for many of us in here, it's just real life. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to the psalmist. It doesn't go into detail. It doesn't explain why he or she feels this way. But we can speculate because we do see a certain set of emotions in here that come up. Number one, we see personal betrayal. We see betrayal. So we see that the depression and the hopelessness is sparked by betrayal. Look at verse 18. He says, friend and neighbor has deserted me. Look at verse 8. He says, I have become repulsive to my closest friends. What what is he saying there? So not only has my friend and neighbor said, we no longer want anything to do with you, but they they don't even want to look at me anymore. They don't even care about me anymore. And maybe for some of you, your depression is coming from something like that. Maybe it's personal betrayal. Maybe it's neglect. Maybe you had a spouse that turned their back on you. Maybe you were promised a a promotion at work and you begin to realize that they never had any intentions of giving it to you. Maybe you've been backstabbed by a best friend. Maybe you've been backstabbed by your in-laws. Maybe it's not just betrayal. Maybe it's neglect. Maybe you're older and your kids just don't call you anymore and that begins to affect you deeply. Or maybe your spouse is cold or indifferent or sexually unresponsive, whatever it may be. So maybe you feel neglected, maybe you feel betrayed, and we see this, that this is something that the psalmist is going through. We also see, not just personal betrayal, but we actually see chronic pain. So in verse 15, it says, from my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. So what is the psalmist saying? Like, this is not just something like I'm 40 years old now, and I'm just starting to experience this pain. He's saying, no, my entire life has been riddled with chronic pain. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the pain in my life has had an end to it. So usually when pain has an end, when you can, if you've been in a car accident or, or something has happened to your body or you get sick or you get the flu or whatever it may be, the thing that keeps you together is, you know, I just got to suffer for a few more weeks and my body will heal itself, right? So it's the ending point of pain that gets you through that. Okay, I just, this is just going to be temporary. But what about if you've experienced chronic pain? Where, where the end is, is never presenting itself. And that is what the psalmist is feeling. He says, in verse 6, he says, I'm at my darkest depths. I'm at my darkest depths. For those who suffer with chronic pain, this verse resonates with you um, more than most will ever know. Because sometimes it's so hard to describe what you're going through and you, you feel completely Alone, When he says that he's at his darkest depths, we realize that this is a serious issue and his depression is extremely real. I don't know if you've ever had the feeling of being in complete, total darkness. 
But um, Ernest Shackleton, who was a part of a doomed mission to cross the South Pole, um, got lost at the South Pole for nearly a year. Now, he was in sub-zero temperatures. He had hardly any food, but he said the worst part about it was the darkness. At the South Pole, get this, the sun goes down in mid-May and doesn't come back up until August. Like, there is nothing. Like, there is, there's no light. There's no cell phone. There's not something you can go charge in. There's nothing. He says, this is a quote, he says, there's a darkness that just covers you, and there's no way out. And the truth is, that's how some people feel in the middle of their depression right now. They feel like, man, there is just this darkness that surrounds me, that covers me, and I relate to this guy, Ernest, because I feel like that's what my life is right now. I feel like I can't see anything in front of my face. I, I don't know what hope looks like. I don't know what joy looks like, because I just feel like in the middle of this depression, this is going to be it. In verse 8, the psalmist actually says, I am confined and I cannot escape. I'm confined and I cannot escape. I was reading um, last week about people, I don't know why I was reading this, but it's about people that get buried in an avalanche. (laughs) I don't know why I was reading it, but anyway. um, But one of the things that they say is when you get buried in an avalanche, that you have so much pressure on every single side of you. And that it's so dark that you don't know which way is up or down. You don't know which way to dig. So they say people, they'll they'll discover them two, three days later, and people had dug this huge tunnel without realizing that they were digging closer and closer to the mountain with not, instead of digging out. But they have so much pressure on both sides, it's so hard to gauge what's going on, and that is how, that's exactly what depression is like. And you don't know where to turn. You don't know where to go. You don't know where to dig. You don't know where to place your hope because you feel so much pressure at all sides. And this is exactly what the psalmist is feeling in Psalms 88. He's saying this, I don't even know where to start. Where do I start? And the truth is, if we're just going to be really honest, and this is what I love about the Psalms. The psalmist displays brutal honesty, so it gives us a license to do the same. So here's what I want you to understand this morning. It is okay, it's okay to just be completely honest. Man, to pray prayers that would shock people sitting next to you. Because the truth is, God knows everything you think anyway. Some of you just need to put it into words. You don't need to pray prayers like, man, man, God, I think you've left me. You need to pray prayers like, God, you've left me. Because the truth is, that's how you feel, isn't it? And that's what the psalmist is saying, like, God, you've left me. And what some of you feel right now, you feel like you're in a situation and you're not even sure if God can get you out of it. (laughs) That's what the psalmist is saying. He's completely almost written off God for a moment. Maybe some of you are looking at it and you're saying, man, God, this marriage is way too far gone. Maybe he or she's remarried by now, or maybe they're dead. God, can you just kill them? That would be nice. (laughs) Whatever it may be. Maybe you feel like it's just completely hopeless, like it's over. Maybe you feel like your career or your reputation has been hopelessly destroyed and there's no coming back. But listen, the psalmist experienced chronic pain. Not only does he experience chronic pain, but he experiences personal betrayal. The next thing that we see that he experiences is loneliness. 
Now, people will tell you who have been through the most intense, sustained amounts of pain will say that the worst part about it all is loneliness. The worst part of depression is loneliness. Why? Because unless people have experienced what you're feeling right now, you have nobody to relate with you, right? And those in depression that find themselves in this dark cloud of depression, oftentimes that's how they feel. Like, if I were to verbalize my genuine feelings, like, people would think I'm crazy. People would think I'm just absolutely insane, and they would want nothing to do with me after I say these things. But the thing I love about the Psalms is he, there is no, and I've said this before, but there's no attempt in Psalms 88 to polish up his reality. He just, it's like, I'm just going to throw up on a page my real raw emotions. I'm going to let people know how I feel. See, the psalmist feels as even God does not understand. He even takes it even further, and he, he doesn't only feel like God doesn't understand, he also feels like now God is against him. Read in in verse uh, 17 to 18. Listen to what he says. He says, your wrath has swept over me. What what is he saying when he says wrath? Your anger, your frustration, you're disappointed with me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken me from friend and neighbor. What is the psalmist describing? He's not only describing depression, he's describing despair. Despair. Man, I feel completely hopeless. See, the psalmist has already answered the question, will life always suck? Well, to the psalmist, according to 88, yes. (laughs) He's already answered it. He's already diagnosed his own life and said, this is going to be it. Like, it's never going to get any better. Now, I know some of you are sitting here going, what the heck? Like, what now, pastor? (laughs) What? What are we doing? Like, why are we, this is so dark. This is so heavy. Why are we reading this? Why are we diving through this? Listen to me. There are certain topics, and this is why I'm so passionate about talking about this topic of depression, because there's certain topics within the church that we don't talk about often enough. And if we don't talk about them here in the church, then where else are we going to talk about them? So, so here's what you get. You end up getting a worldly view on where maybe God brought you here today to say, hey man, we're going to talk about this dark issue so that we can get some hope back, so that we can get some joy restored. And it may feel heavy, it may feel dark, but that's okay. Because I know that there's genuinely people in here struggling and wrestling with this. But I'm here to bring you some hope today. Because the whole goal in this is, yes, to talk about what depression looks like, and hopefully we've just kind of defined it for some of you. And maybe some of you, for the first time, you're going, man, I don't feel so crazy. The the, the most identifiable thing that you should understand is, man, there's men in the Bible that changed the world that felt just like you do. It's awesome. So so maybe for some of you, for the first time, you're going, okay, identify with some of this stuff. But here's, here's the cool part. If you turn over one chapter. One chapter in Psalms 89. Psalms 89 is written by the same author who wrote Psalms 88. Okay, listen to what he says, 89 verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. Forever with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Sounds like a completely different guy, doesn't it? Skip down to verse 8. It says, you are entirely faithful, O Lord. (laughs) 
You rule the nations, you subdue the storm-tossed waves. I want to pause there because for the Jews at the time, the people that would have been reading this psalm at the time when they read the phrase, storm-tossed waves, it represented the great unknown. So, So what is the psalmist saying? God, you rule over the great unknown. What is depression? The great unknown. I don't know how this is going to resolve. I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how my joy or my hope is going to be restored. So when they read this, and they read storm-tossed oceans, they read it with this intensity of God completely conquers the unknown. The psalmist is saying, Lord, you have overcome the unknown. And he's saying it this way, I don't know what the future holds, but I certainly know who holds the future, is what he's saying. Continue reading in verse 89, I mean chapter 89, verse 10 through 12. It says, you crushed the great sea monster. What what does that mean? The great sea monster simply means this, it means Egypt. What was Egypt to the Jews? Egypt was their enemy. So, So what is the psalmist saying? Man, not only do you rule over the great unknown, but man, you suppress and you rule over those who want to destroy my life. It says, you scattered our enemies with your mighty arm. Everything in the world is yours. You created it all. You created north and south, Mount Tabor, which simply means east, and Mount Hermon, which means west. Praise your name. Now, let me, let me ask you this. How are these psalms placed side by side? Was someone in the editing room just like, man, let's put the most depressing psalm next to this one? I think it makes perfect sense. Like, why did that happen? But the truth is, the book of Psalms is written in part to present you with the mystery of the Christian life. And here's what I mean by this. The truth is, we all go through chapters of our life, and some chapters feel like 88. See, Psalms 88, thank God it's not the whole book, it's one chapter, right? And the truth is, When you're in a chapter like 88, it feels like the rest of your life. And it feels like, man, life is just going to remain in Psalms 88. But the good news is it's only one chapter. And when you turn over to 89, it's a completely different season. It's a completely different day. But Psalms 88 exists to show us that it's okay to be honest when we find ourselves in Psalms 88 moments. One of the best things that you can do if you struggle with depression, if you find yourself in a Psalms 88 moment, is just to be honest. And listen, you may, this is why community and life groups are so important, so that you can sit down with another human being who is a safe place for you. That they can become a safe refuge for you to sit down and begin to truly just flesh out what's going on in your head flesh out what's going on in your mind and people that can love you and help you through that process and not hear the words that you're saying and go, whoa, my gosh, that person's crazy. But people can look at you and just say, man, I, I, I'm so sorry that you're dealing with that. And they have compassion and they have empathy and sympathy and they want to help you get to the next level. But this is important. Just because you find yourself in a Psalms 88 moment right now, it does not invalidate Psalms 89. So here's what I mean. Just because you're in 88, just because you're in Psalms 88, just because you're dealing with depression right now, it does not mean just because you find yourself in this moment that you're too low to ever experience joy again. 
And oftentimes, people with depression, they discount themselves. Well, I've slipped back into this dark hole. Like, I'm not worthy to have a Psalms 89 moment. I'm not worthy enough for God to come in and restore my hope and my joy. The thing I love about 1 Corinthians 10, I won't read the whole thing, but it says that God always creates a way out for us, doesn't he? Listen, there is no depression, no hopelessness, no despair where God has not designed a way out. God has created a way out. Listen, you may not see it right now. It may not be obvious, but he has created a way out. So let's talk about three simple things that Psalms 89 assures us of. Because I know some of you are like, for all you positive people in here, you're like, let's get out of Psalms 88. So what does Psalms 89 assure us of? Number one, God's never-ending love rules over everything in your life. Over everything in your life. Verse 9 says it this way. He rules the raging sea, which represents every chaotic moment in your life. God knows what it's like to be depressed. And some of you are like, how, how would God know that? I don't know if you remember the story when Jesus, right before he starts his ministry, it says he is led by the Holy Spirit to go into the desert for 40 days. No food, no water, and to just be tempted by the enemy. I don't know about you guys, but I'd be like, if I, if I don't eat for like a day, I'm psycho. <laughs> right? I mean, he knew what it was like to be brought extremely low. I mean, we talked about it last week. Jesus is sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he dies and sweating blood. I mean, he knows what depression feels like. See, God rules over every cancer cell in our body, every unexpected job loss, every random accident, everything that happens in your life, God is aware of it. And the number one lie in the middle of depression is when you're fighting this, you're saying, man, God has just forgotten me. But according to Psalms 89, it says that he rules over every chaotic moment in your life, that God is there, that he knows exactly what you deal with. In verse 10, it says he controls the sea monster, which represents your plot the enemy has against you. So so here's what happens. In the middle of depression, two things take place. The the first thing is you feel like God's forgotten me. Well, well, when you buy into that lie, that God's forgotten you, and you start believing that lie, well, the enemy jumps on that. And now he begins to to throw his own kind of battles and, and things that he begins to rage against you. So not only do you believe that God has forgotten me, but you also believe, man, everybody is just out to get me. Nobody's going to understand. If I open up, if I confess, everybody's going to think I'm crazy. But the Psalms even says that God stands at the north, the south, the east, and the west. So what does this simply mean? It means this. There's no power coming from any direction that God will not turn into his plan for your life. Every single dark, low moment that you have in your life, God can turn around and use that for his glory. And you may say, how in the world is that ever going to happen? But the truth is, nothing falls outside of God's control. Nothing. Nothing. The second thing that we see, God's never-ending love is not always immediately obvious to us. That's the most difficult thing. That sometimes God leaning in and loving us 
is not obvious to us sometimes. In Psalms 88, we see the psalmist, he can't find any evidence of God's love. He's in the chapter of his life where he's just dug himself in this pit of despair. But also in Psalms 89, what I just read to you all the way to verse 10 was quite hopeful, right? But in the same chapter, Psalms 89, look at this, verse 46. Oh Lord, how long will this go on? Will you hide yourself forever? So what does the psalmist have? He has this moment of hope, but then he has this brief moment of a flashback of Psalms 88. He has this brief moment of, oh God, where are you? How long will this go on? But then he continues. No, that's not going to be my life anymore. He continues to pursue. And here's the truth. We have a tendency to judge God's love for us by the situation we presently find ourselves in right now. So, so let me put it this way. If you find yourself dealing with depression, if you find yourself dealing with hopelessness, you literally believe that God has a low tolerance of love for you. You literally believe, well, because I've dug myself so low, God just must not love me that much. Or you believe that you're just simply not worthy enough to be loved. Or we buy into the, well, if things are good in my life, then God just must have favor on me. And if things are bad, then God has obviously forgotten about me. I think the truth is many times in our life we're willing to endure pain when we can see the end, right? So, so what do I mean by this? Maybe, maybe this logic has played out in your life before. Maybe you wrongfully got fired from a job. Maybe you did something that was unethical or whatever. You had a bad moment. You cursed a coworker out. You got fired. But then all of a sudden, because you got fired, two days later, you get offered another job with better pay, has better benefits, and the logic that you have in your head was, oh, well, God was just looking out for me. He fired me from my job, and I got another one. Praise Jesus, right? Now, why were you willing to go through that pain of losing the job and the, and the fear and the hopelessness? Because you saw an end to the pain, right? You saw an end. Well, oh, I got rehired. I have a job. I'll be okay. My family's going to be fine. Well, what happens when you can't see the end? What happens when you lose the job and, like, day after day after day after month after month after year after year and you see no end in sight and you can't see God's favor working on your life. And sometimes you feel exactly like the psalmist, like he says in Psalms 89, how long, O God, will this last? The truth is sometimes you cannot see God's plan And you may never see exactly what he is doing in your life. But I want you to hear me on this because this is so important. If your faith depends on seeing the resolution in this life, you'll never make it. Because sometimes we can't see it. And that's a crisis of faith waiting to happen. If you always have to be the person that, I got to see it, God. I got to see the end. I got to see the resolution. How does this resolve itself? And sometimes I'm just going to be honest with you. Sometimes God doesn't show you his cards. That's why I said in point two, God's never ending love is not always immediately obvious to us. Sometimes it doesn't reveal itself to us in the moment. But it does not negate the fact that God is still good. And that's how we feel sometimes. When you're like, God, just show me the cards. 
How does this play out? This leads me to point three. I'm going to say this one and then I'm going to explain it. Number three, God's never-ending love shapes the glorious conclusion of his plan. So let me explain it like this. Eugene Peterson actually wrote a book on the Psalms, and he points out that most of the Psalms are laments, like Psalms 88. Meaning, I said it last week, there's 67 Psalms in the Psalms that are all these laments of crying out to God, like, where are you? When are you going to come through? We feel hopeless. We feel like you've forgotten us. But he makes this observation in his book on the Psalms. He notes that the last five Psalms, Psalms 146 through 150, are all praise Psalms. There's no laments. There's no complaints. There's just praise. And Peterson's conclusion was simply this. All prayer prayed long enough eventually turns into praise. All prayer prayed long enough eventually turns into praise. So what does this mean? After Psalms 88, there are 62 psalms until we get to 146. 62 prayers of screaming and crying and lamenting and begging to God until we finally get to 146 to 150 where it's just all praise, all rejoicing, thanking God for everything. The last psalm in Psalms 150, the last line in it ends with this, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now, the ending to me is not what is so surprising. What's so surprising is all the space in between from Psalms 88 to 150. It's surprising because we see that the psalmist has finally come to the place from 188 to say, I'm going to continue lamenting. I'm going to continue to cry out. I'm going to continue to pursue God. And all prayer prayed long enough eventually turns into praise. So meaning this, it may be a chapter of your life where it's lamenting and screaming and crying out to the Lord. And then you get to Psalms 89 and you're thanking the Lord for your journey and all the pain that you've gone through and everything that you've learned through that. And then you get to another chapter and it's, God, where are you? What are you doing? And then you get to another chapter and it's more praise. Finally, to you arrive at the place where you finally believe everything that you've been praying. See, I think the end is not the most important thing. It's the space in between, what we do with that. So what is the space in between? The space is in between. It's the place you find yourself in right now and the place you want to be in the future. See, the space in between feels exactly like Psalms 88. It feels like hopelessness. The thing that I love about the, psalm, the psalmist is even though he felt this despair, even though he felt this hopelessness, he never quit lamenting. He never quit being honest with where he was really at with the Lord. Paul tells us that the space in between, when we find ourselves in this kind of gray area of life, that it's a lot like childbirth. Paul says that it's, a lot like childbirth, meaning that all of a sudden labor is the most painful, intensive thing that a woman could ever experience, but it immediately gets swallowed up in joy as soon as they see that baby, right? All that pain, all that laboring, all those hours of not sleeping and back aches and stretch marks and the dead of summer, especially in Louisiana, all that goes away the moment that you hold that child. 
Like all the thoughts of how awful this pregnancy is swallowed up in joy the moment you place that child upon your skin. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to realize. He's saying, listen, I know that the space in between, the fight, the Psalms 88 moment, it feels dreadful, it feels awful, it feels terrible. But if you'll just keep pushing, if you'll just keep pushing along, if you'll just keep fighting, you'll eventually get to a Psalms 150 moment. My family has experienced, or we experienced the space in between yesterday. So we... um, about a month ago, my wife had got a membership at the gym at Cajun Fitness, and one of the cool things that they have is a pool there. And so for the past probably, I guess, few weeks, we've kind of made it a family pastime on Saturdays. We've been going swimming, and we love it. They have a little shallow part for the kids, so they can swim there, and it's super safe for them. So it's easy on Claire and I. It's relaxing. It's great. But what you don't understand is before we actually get to the pool, we have to go through the space in between. So so here's what I mean. Before we go to the pool, before we can relax, before we can swim, before we can eat, before we can enjoy each other's company, before all that happens, we make seven sandwiches, we pick up the messy house, we change a horrendous poo explosion, (laughs) we spank a few kids, we search the house for the godforsaken missing shoe. Anybody, any parents know what I'm talking? Where is your shoe, son? I'm about to glue it to your foot. And you're about to get into the van, you change another diaper, finally to get into the van, to drive, and you finally get to the pool, and you're like, oh, yeah, we ain't going. <laughs> now, why do we do that? Why do we go through the 45 minutes of, of making lunch and disciplining children and changing the diapers and searching for the shoe and cleaning the house so that when we get back, we can relax? Why do we do all that? Because the end result is worth it. We do it all because the end result is worth it. We finally get to sit down with the kids. We relax. There's no phone calls. We don't answer our phone. We just enjoy each other. And listen, it's the same way in the battle of depression. Your depression may be horrible now, but the glorious conclusion of God's plan is to restore your joy. And the reason that you don't give up is because you buy into the fact that God has a plan for your life. And you understand, just like 1 Corinthians says, that man, you may be in this dark moment now, but God always creates a way out. And you understand that if you are a child of God and he loves you, that God has a plan for your life. And God's plan for your life is not to struggle with this darkness the rest of your life. And the truth is, for some of you, maybe you don't get a resolution until eternity, until God makes everything right. But one day, everything will be made right. I love the way that J.R.R. Tolkien says it, Lord of the Rings author. He says, one day, God will make every sad thing untrue. I love it. One day, God will make every sad thing untrue. Every dark moment that you have experienced, every depressing moment you have experienced, every gray cloud that follows you, God will make all of that untrue one day. To one day, it'll be a distant memory. And not only will it be a distant memory, it'll be something that you can't even fathom because you find yourself in the presence of the Lord and depression is not a thing. 
See, one day all of the pain in your life will seem strangely insignificant in light of God's glorious plan for your life. And I don't know if you know this, but God's plan for your life is joy. It's joy. And I know right now it seems horrible. Right now you're trying to answer the question, will my life always suck? But the truth is, I want you to to think for a moment to think honestly about some of the things in your life and to think about how pain has actually shaped your life for the better in some certain circumstances. Think about it for a moment. For some of you, you can already see how God has used pain in your life to make you better. Think about it. Maybe the divorce taught you to depend on God. Maybe the tragic death refocused your faith and helped you see things that really matter in life. Maybe the job that you lost caused you to see how much your happiness was tied to stuff. Now, I want you to track with me on this. If your fallen mind can already see the good purposes God has for your pain, imagine what God sees. If your fallen mind can only see a fraction of it, oh, okay, I see how God used that to benefit my life. Imagine what God sees. Imagine what he sees. Simon Sinek, who's been made famous by YouTube, um, many of you have maybe heard of him, but he says this, he says, the millennial generation suffers from a complete inability to appreciate delayed gratification. (laughs) Now, he says it that way because he says everything is instant in this culture. We have Google answers, we have text messages, we have Amazon, we have TV, like, some of us are, like, seriously upset when, like, we're watching Netflix and there's a buffer. You're like, oh, my God, this internet is horrible. I'm paying $80 a month for this. But here's the truth. Some things in life don't work like that. Some things in life just don't work like that. And I want you to hear me. This is so important. Healing is like that. Healing is not Netflix. Being set free from depression is not like a quick text message that we send to our friends. It is a process. It is why you need a church family. It is why you need community because if you expect it to be instant, you're buying into a lie. It is a process. It is a journey. It is a chapter of your life just like 88. You will never move to chapter 89 until you dive into community and you get into a healthy church family that can help you, carry you to the next chapter of your life. Healing is a long process. It's not instant. You know what I find sad about this generation is is this. Our generation can see the top of the mountain. We can see where we want to be. The problem is we can't see the whole mountain. We see the top of it, but we fail to forget to get to the top. we got to climb it. <laughs> Listen, if you want to get to the top, if healing is the top for you, you have, to buy, you have to understand this, that there is going to be a journey that you have to enter into. There has to be a mountain that you have to scale. There has to be something that you have to climb. God's work takes time in our lives, and this is the reason that it takes time. Because God loves us so much, and if he just dropped all the solutions on us at one time, it would crush us, and we wouldn't know what to do with it. 
So God, in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, every single day just feeds us a new revelation. We get something else out of the scriptures. We, we, we get together and we break bread with friends and uh, something else pops in our mind. And it is this process, this ongoing thing that continues for the rest of our life. I love the way that Eugene Peterson put it. All prayer prayed long enough eventually turns into praise. Man, so here's what I want to do as I, I bring this to a close. I want to encourage you today. Man, just enter in to the journey, to the process. I want to encourage you. We, we have our life group, our new life group semester coming up soon. Man, do everything that you can to be a part of that. Listen, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I've had, I've had the privilege over the past two years to travel back and forth to England. And one of the things that Matt talks about oftentimes is you know, the church in England, I mean, they really do need, like, a revival. Um, I mean, people just don't go to church anymore. I mean, Matt has a church about the size of 120 people, and that's, like, a mega church in England, okay? I mean, people just don't go to church like they used to. And, um, and the truth is, here in America, there used to be this, this statistic, this average, that would say the average American goes to church three times in a month. I don't know if, you, if you, you care to read about the statistics or not, but the truth is the average American, it's declining. The average American goes to church about twice a month, and they're expecting within the next five years it'll be once a month, and then before you know it, we're a lot like Europe, where we don't highly regard community. We don't highly regard being in a church. It's not something that we see as important. I would go as far as saying this. You cannot make it in this journey without spiritual family. You just can't. You can't do it. I don't know about you, but there has been times in my life where, man, I have no answers. And I have prayed, and I have cried, and I have sought God, and I've sought counsel, and I've sought wisdom, and I still come up short with nothing. And the only thing, the only thing that has carried me through is not just my relationship with Jesus, but the people that I have placed in my life to say, hey, I know it sounds hopeless, but you know what? It's going to get better. And God's going to see it through because God's for you. And God wants to prosper you in this life. Man, I want to encourage you. Like, what we do here, it's important. It's so important. It's more important than most of you think that it is. And I want to encourage you, man, if, especially if you're struggling with depression, hopelessness, despair, whatever it may be. Man, God wants to plant you in a family. It says, those that are planted in the house will prosper. We will grow. We'll be like roots that sink down deep. So listen, at the end of the day, remember, God's not asking you, if you're dealing with depression right now, that, hey, man, you just need to, you heard a message, and you need to walk out of these doors, and you just drop it. <laughs> you can get over it. You go live your life, and don't let depression be a thing. Look, that's just not how it works. It's going to be a process. It's going to be a journey. And our job as a church is all we want to do is simply come alongside you and say, how can we help? What can we do? We don't, we don't want to control your life. We want to just come alongside you and say, man, how can we be here for you? That's what life groups, that's all they are. How can we be here for you? What can we do? How can we serve you? How can we help you walk through this journey? The show of hands, how many of you would say, man, life sometimes is just hard. It's just hard. 
You know what? It's even harder alone. It's even harder by yourself. Now, now look, for some of you in here, you're like, well, Pastor Zach, look, I am just not a people person. When I walk into rooms, the corner is the first thing that I look for. I relate. I'm not naturally an extroverted person. I've grown in being around people just by the nature of what I do. <laughs> God has stretched me and grown me so much over the past three years. And look, sometimes I know. Sometimes you just, man, you don't want to be around people. You don't want to talk to anybody. And especially when somebody's like, man, are you okay? You're like, ask me another question. I'll punch you in the face. <laughs> like, don't, just don't ask me. I know, I know what that feels like. I know what, what it looks like to deal with those kind of things. But the truth is, and I'm just going to be honest with you, your personality is not an excuse for you, con- for you to continue to sit in the hopelessness and despair. Well, this is the way that God, that God has wired me. God has not wired you to sit in depression the rest of your life. God has wired you to experience the fullness of his glory and his joy and his presence. 